0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to episode 83 of the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host. Just this morning as I was thinking about how to introduce this episode, a friend and co-author in Athens sent me a story from a 9th century western chronicle which is about an ambassador of Charlemagne sent to Constantinople on a mission. The story, incidentally, is a complete piece of folklore. There's no historical reality behind it at all. It's like from something out of a thousand and one nights. Anyway, so he attends a dinner at the palace and breaks one of the rules of etiquette protocol there and The emperor says, you know, um, I'm going to have to execute you, but before I do that, I will grant you one wish. And The ambassador says, one wish, my lord. You grant me one wish? He says, yes, one wish. He says, well, I wish for the person who saw what I did and reported it to you to be blinded. So who was it? And suddenly, you know, there's a a hush in the room. (laughs) They all look at each other. The emperor says, well, it wasn't me. I, I didn't. I didn't see you do it, and the empress says, "Oh, I didn't. I didn't see you either. I swear it on on the Trinity. I didn't see it." And one by one, everybody there says, "No, not me. It wasn't me." In the end, you know, there's nobody left. <laughs> and he says, "Well, it doesn't seem that anybody saw this happen. So I guess I'm free to go." And the empress says, "Yes." And the story concludes. And thus, our ambassador, you know, showed up those arrogant and vain Greeks. That's that's the point of the story. Now, you'll notice that the punishment of blinding is something proposed by the Western ambassador. His own punishment for, I kid you not, eating the fish in the wrong direction uh, was to be execution. But nevertheless, the story does link this sort of idea of blinding with things that happen in Constantinople. And in fact, Blinding is a fairly pervasive form of punishment that's used in the political annals um, of the Eastern Roman Empire. We don't know how much it was used for common people, but in the cases of uh, rebels against the throne, potential usurpers, that sort of thing, it was used fairly commonly. And that's what today's episode is about. I will warn you in advance that there are some pretty graphic descriptions in our conversation about bodily mutilation and the the process of blinding people. So if that's the sort of thing that makes you sort of very uncomfortable, um, maybe skip this episode. Uh, I know I find some of this sort of cringeworthy at times, and actually that's something that I was reflecting on uh, as I was thinking about this introduction. That is, how is it that we find this so appalling and barbaric to, to do that to a person. And there does not appear to be much evidence that people in the Middle Ages found this to be so, you know, beyond the pale or or what we would call today cruel and unusual punishment in the language of the U.S. Constitution. I mean, it was definitely considered a, a, a pretty serious thing to do to a person and and for them, you know, It had very negative outcomes for for their life, Uh, but it was sort of routinely embedded in the political culture. And this got me thinking about both a broader question and a more specific question. The broader question, which is not something that I think our field has addressed, is the degree to which cruel spectacles were part of Byzantine life. So, for example, we know we have very detailed accounts of the very cruel ways of execution and the various kinds of games that went on in the ancient Roman amphitheaters. And we have you know tens of thousands of people showing up to witness these spectacles and apparently enjoyed them greatly. And we also have countless accounts of similar... A gruesome executions, torture and dismemberment taking place in public spaces in Western Europe for centuries, and people obviously enjoying them. And it wasn't until the Enlightenment that that stopped. And I know it's often fashionable these days to you know disparage the Enlightenment, but we do owe it that. During the course of the 18th century, the resistance and protest against these cruel Punishments and the, and the spectacle of of seeing people enjoy torture being done to other people declined dramatically, um, and you know that's where we got that clause in the U.S. Constitution. All the countries started stopped torturing, like having it in their law codes. And the, the tail end of that process is the movement to abolish capital punishment. That's an ongoing struggle in many parts of the world today, including the United States. So, the kinds of things that we don't stand for today is the state writing its script on people's bodies, right? So, turning human bodies into spectacles of its own power and sort of sending a message to the population via some act of violence that it does on someone's body. You know, today we. We want to think of bodies as a purely sort of private, inviolable um, self that maybe you use as a vehicle of self-expression, you know, know, with art or how you dress or whatever, but not for the state or anyone else to impose their social script on. And blinding is very much that in Byzantium, right? It is a very public demonstration I was going to say visible, but let's try to avoid sight puns um, of the state's power. And you know, because the media by which the state could communicate its messages were fairly limited, that is a very striking one. Um, so it shows to everybody else uh, you know, what it has done to someone who was treasonous in some way or another. Um, and that's the sort of thing that we just won't stand for today. In fact, it even impacts the way the uh, issue of capital punishment is discussed. Setting aside for the moment whether you know capital punishment is justified at all, or whether you know there's a moral consensus that can support it, there's a question of how it's done, and we kind of gravitate toward the more sort of antiseptic, less visible, less bodily gruesome forms of it. Um, you know, so away from like firing squad or something like that, to something that is v- virtually invisible as a process. That, like, that's the aesthetic that it has been reduced to. That's the only place where it can go because we just can't tolerate um, the kind of visible bodily interventions. Anyway, so there is a question about whether Eastern Roman Empire, in especially its middle phase, middle and late, was a place of such. You know, gratuitous public cruelty, and I—I I don't think so. But we haven't really investigated it. That is, whether there was a public that relished, you know, acts of torture performed for its entertainment. Anyway, I'm not going to turn this into a <laughs> dissertation on that. Uh, it, it's a de- dissertation, definitely worth writing. Um, I can think of things that sort of point in that direction, but they're not generally very prominent, and it's not as if Byzantine literature as a whole contains a whole lot of descriptions of this. Um, As a culture, it doesn't seem to have been that oriented, you know, the way the ancient Romans were, the way modern Europeans were, uh, until a point. But there definitely were uh, audiences for some of the blindings that we'll be talking about. However, and this is a specific point, and I'll mention it very quickly. It's not clear that in Byzantine culture, blinding was understood as a cruel and unusual punishment. Quite the contrary, it seems to have been understood as a mitigation of the more extreme punishment, which is capital punishment, that is, as a sort of more merciful and philanthropic and alternative, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that, but it's possible that, yes, it was seen as a more lenient version of the punishment that would otherwise have been merited. And, you know, aren't we compassionate? <laughs> sort of thing. Uh, but it is a very complex question, and we have to, you know, embed it carefully within a broader social dynamic. It's got lots of aspects. And here to talk with me about some of them is Jake Ransehoff who just recently finished a very large research project on this topic, and I hope will be publishing the book fairly soon. Uh, Jake is a very impressive young scholar. I've had very illuminating conversations with him over a number of years. He's co-organized at least one very important conference that I was at that resulted in an equally very important co-edited volume um, on the invention of Byzantine studies in early modern Europe. And as you will hear, uh, he is also a very able communicator about a very difficult and kind of cringy topic. Uh, so uh, without any more discoursing on my part, uh, here's my conversation with Jake Ransahoff. Hello, Jake. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Anthony. Glad to be here with you. I think it's fair to
0: say that uh, blinding people was a kind of systemic part of Byzantine political culture and also the, the penal system. And so we need to understand it on a systemic level, right? It's not just like one-off acts of barbarity or whatever, like a modern reader might think, but it is also a kind of grisly topic. So let me just start off by asking you what led you to decide to focus on this.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it it can be a pretty unappealing topic. You know, it's off-putting. I I definitely didn't go into graduate school saying, yes, I'm going to spend the next however many years studying how Byzantines Poke each other's eyes out, um, but you know, following the breadcrumbs of this to our mind, think really shocking and horrific punishment, I think, very quickly leads us beyond the act itself towards some really fundamental problems about power and justice and legitimacy and identity in the Byzantine world. What first got me interested in this topic was actually the very fact of blinding's seeming longevity, as you mentioned. You know, it's this enduring feature of uh, the empire's legal and political system by one count just about over half of byzantine rulers you know 51% lost their thrones to rebels or usurpers between constantine the great and constantine XI. and a large number of these deposed emperors or these failed usurpers were disfigured or disabled especially through blinding to prevent them from seeking or regaining the throne in the future you know and I've, I found scattered examples in my research of this kind of political use of mutilation as early as the 300s all the way to the eve of the Ottoman conquest of Constantinople in the 1400s. So it's a really long phenomenon. Uh, But I I felt like I didn't understand the social dynamics and the cultural beliefs that drove authorities in Byzantium to repeatedly use blinding as a stratagem to neutralize opponents. What was it about the body that made bodily impairment a missing hand or a missing nose or you know, blindness, what made that effective as a way to bar someone from the imperial office or from other positions of high social status? You know, and I, I just I think blinding is a particularly interesting facet of East Roman or, or political culture to think with because it can be studied over such a long span of time. It gives us a, a metric of sorts for gauging social and political change. Yeah, I, I use this phrase in my dissertation. I, I borrow it from a German historian Herbert Grunbaum, and kind of call uh, call blinding a, a seismograph for cultural history because its its fluctuations mm-hmm. in frequency and meaning really reveal movements that are sometimes obscured beneath the deceptively stable surface of our Byzantine evidence. So it, it's that seismographic potential that really captured my interest and convinced me that this was worth pursuing. You know, however grisly the topic might be. Right, because
0: the practice must mean something above and beyond uh, precluding someone from seeking the throne, because you could just kill them. (laughs) And that would do it much more effectively. And because there was one uh, emperor who was blinded blinded and did return to the throne, um, Mm -hmm. and one who lost his nose and returned to the throne, right? So um, in other cultures, you might you know, just kill them. Um, and th- this happened often in Byzantium too, you could eliminate potential rivals that way. So this particular practice must mean something more specific within the culture. And, and so this is what I wanted to explore with you a little bit. Um, before we get to that, um, let's talk a little bit about how this has been perceived in the West. Uh, because I think that this Byzantine practice of blinding, um, has been used, among many other things, to paint Byzantium in these pretty dark colors, like, you know, the kind of Enlightenment image of this sort of very barbaric society. So can you talk a little bit about this tradition and and how blinding sort of fit into it?
1: Yeah, you know, there is this persistent tendency to see the medieval period of all all stripes, Byzantium and and the West, you know, as a, a a time that's steeped in a kind of culture of cruelty, right? It's an age marked by savage and unrestrained and yes. fundamentally uninterpretable acts of, of violence.
0: Yes, I'll get barbaric on, oh no, I'll get medieval on your ass. Wasn't that in- Yeah, that's right. I'll get me, I'll,
1: can, can we say ass on the podcast?
0: Great. We, can, <laughs> we can say
1: ass, yes. Great. Uh, but you, I, I think this, this kind of discourse of medieval violence actually takes on a particular edge in the case of Byzantium itself, and in the case of Byzantine blinding, particularly, particularly because um, you know Byzantium is the East Roman medieval continuation of the Roman state, and so it just lends itself to classical Roman antiquity in a very direct way. Uh, and blinding is not really present in a visible way, so to speak, uh, in mm. you know, Roman law. Um, in Roman culture, this kind of culture of mutilation, uh, but it becomes very present in Byzantium and in, in Byzantine law for, for several reasons we can talk about maybe a little bit more. Uh, but the, the question that people reading these sources, you know, when they see, okay, well, there's not really a lot of mutilation in you know, Roman law or culture, but there is in Byzantium, the question is, well, w- what happens to sort of flip the switch? and make Byzantine into this mutilating society. And the conventional answer that people have come upon is that, well, it's it's Persian, right? It's a borrowing from Aye. the Sicilian Persian, it's part of the Persian empire. It's part of this kind of drift of the Roman empire in the East into an oriental despotism, a transformation from the principate into, you know, what scholars used to kind of call the despotate, with its, you know, sacred monarchy and all the ritual trappings of kind of oriental despotism. And so this comes up even in in some really terrific historians like George Ostrogorsky, a a phenomenal scholar who talks about the Byzantines, he has this quote, they had this oriental delight in cruelty, he says, that sets them apart from their classical Roman forebears. And so blinding ends up becoming historiographically this kind of signature of the type of regime that Byzantium morphed into. Um, now, many of these interpretations, these kind of Orientalist interpretations, are no longer really current in Byzantine history. But this impression that blinding is somehow foreign or alien to the Roman past has persisted. And you'll still find works that talk about you know, blinding as having the Sasanian origin, that's imported from Persia. You know that, that claim actually rests on some very, very thin evidence. Uh, It's very difficult to actually establish that it comes from Persia, But, but even if we allow that it does come from Persia, this kind of diffusionary mode of explanation doesn't actually get us very far. You know, borrowing is always selective, and thus it depends on the cultural system of the borrower. So to say that blinding came from Persia actually tells us nothing unless we also understand the contemporary values of the institutions and the meanings and the functions that allowed it to take root in the Roman world.
0: Right, and I think it's important to note here that even when, like Ostrogorsky is making those kinds of comparisons between Roman and Byzantine law, those kind of overlook things like gladiatorial games or crucifixion, which the ancient Romans did, and the Byzantines had very specifically abolished mm-hmm. um as being you know either cruel or well, in the case of crucifixion, it's sort of cut close to heart in other ways. but um, so it's, it's not as if this is a, a straightforward move to barbarity or whatever. In fact, as we'll talk about, it's possible that they saw it in a, in a very different way. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the pragmatics and the history of blinding um, before we kind of interpret um, this as a cultural practice. So why don't you start us off with um, so what, what sorts of crimes or, you know, ostensible reasons were people blinded in Byzantium?
1: Yeah, um, legit, to set that up, let's, let's talk just a little bit about, um, you know, how binding is used in, in Byzantine law as opposed to sort of the differences that set it apart from, from Roman law. This kind of touches on that. Uh, you know, in part, one of the things that separates Byzantine law codes from the 8th century onwards, as opposed to, let's say, Justinianic legislation or earlier Roman legislation, is the, the latitude that's allowed for sentencing. In the Roman world, you have magistrates who are given this wide latitude to kind of apply sentences in in cases according to their own discretion. So you don't actually have a kind of single sentence that's set down in many cases. You do in some, right? Treason's one of them. But in in many cases, you don't have a single penalty that's ascribed one-to-one to to a specific type of crime. It's it's up to the magistrate to apply those crimes. Um, So we have incidental evidence. You know, we have this novel from Justinian, you're know, telling our judges, you know, don't cut off both hands of an mm. offender. Just, just one. One is enough. You know, so we we have these this kind of evidence that mutilation penalties exist in the Roman world, but our legal our normative legal evidence is such that it really hides it in Roman antiquity. But it becomes much more visible from the eighth century onwards, in part because you have Byzantine law codes that start to apply specific mutilation punishments to specific crimes. So in the Ecloga law code, for instance, which is promulgated around 740, um, you you have this kind of one to one. If you do this, this happens. If you do that, that happens. Um, And what you can kind of discern from this law code is a kind of hierarchy of penalties right? So if you steal, you get your hand cut off. And if you are, uh, if you commit adultery, which is a a pretty pretty big sin, you get your nose cut off. And then blinding is reserved at the kind of, it comes at the peak of this pyramid or this hierarchy of different types of penalties. So it's reserved for repeated crimes or crimes that are particularly heinous. So for instance, uh, if you steal from a church, you get your hand cut off. But if you steal from the altar of a church, you're blinded. So blinding, you know, when it becomes visible in our sources, becomes visible as the, the most serious form of mutilation penalty. Now, where what doesn't happen in our laws, but does come up in historiographical works and all sorts of other things, is blinding used as a punishment to, for real or suspected rebels or traitors or you know, would be rivals to the emperor. And what's interesting is that there's no written law that actually says that you get blinded for treason. Right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it doesn't appear at all in our actual normative legislation. And in fact, all of our Byzantine legislation like Roman legislation, insists that death is the penalty for treason, for attempted usurpation, for conspiring against the emperor, death. Um, but also from the 8th century on, you get these death sentences in, in cases of high treason, which are referred to the emperor for his kind of personal oversight. So I think you know, from a legal point of view, we can best understand the use of blinding against high traitors uh, as an exercise in the empire's emperors' uh, economia. You know this kind of prerogative that emperors had to lessen the severity of laws. You know, in principle, every case of blinding as a punishment for or as a preventative measure against treason represents an active commutation of death by the emperor. Instead of you know death, you right. get of taken down one notch to the highest level of mutilation penalty. Um, So that's the theory of it, right? But in practice, emperors and their agents so frequently commuted the sentence of rebels or conspirators that by no later than the ninth century, this gruesome sanction of blinding had really become the expected penalty for crimes against the state.
0: Right, so to that degree, blinding can be understood as a kind of act of mercy or judicial leniency.
1: That's right. Yeah,
0: right. And it, so this is what Leo the Third, right, who issued the Ecloga, he refers to the his law code being sort of more philanthropic. Mm-hmm. Now he doesn't say why exactly, but we generally understand that, that this use of amputation and blinding rather than execution uh, is is that um, you know now I you know I had read a study sort of sort of tallying up all the what constituted a capital crime in different phases, and I think like mm-hmm. Constantine, Constantine the Great, was like particularly uh, execution-minded when it when it came to penalties, and that, that kind of got softened a, a, as you go later. Um, huh. what's yeah. oh, it's called judicial savage.
1: <laughs> oh, like the Ramsey McMullen. Uh, yeah. 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 Yeah, that's right. Um, but, but, you know, this is this very much the mode of imperial self-presentation in these law codes is yeah. to really hit the, the philanthropy of this, you know, the, the, the term they use, philanthropia, um, to uh, kind of sell what they're doing here with these mutilation penalties or with the, with the ability of the emperor to intercede at any point and reduce the harshness of a sentence.
0: Okay. So how were people blinded? Um, what were the physical
1: means? Yeah, that, that that's a great question. You know, we don't have any kind of normative guidebook for this, right? We, we, what we have to do is sort of piece it together from the images that we have and from circumstantial descriptions, some of which are, are, are very rich, you know, indeed. Um, most of our sources, when they talk about the instrument that's being used for blinding, they'll call it an, an iron. Cideron uh, is the, mm. the term they use. And so they, they just say an iron. You know, it, they don't really go into great depth of what kind of iron instrument it is. If we're going by images, they often depict them as these long, thin instruments. Um, And it's very possible that may have been something like surgical instruments used in, in, you know, to cauterize wounds and things like that. Um, Some of these have been recovered archeology, archeologically rather. And uh, they bear some resemblance to images that we see in manuscript illuminations of of blinding. Um, Now the victims, arms and legs were bound and they were laid flat on the ground and, Without getting too detailed here about the the kind of gory bits and pieces, uh, executioners sometimes sharpened this iron to a point before they applied it to the eye, and in certain cases, this point was also heated. Although this actually seems to have become more common only after the FDT 11th century, so you had executioners who sort of you know, the the victim would be bound, laid flat on the ground. Executioners would sit on their chest. You often have people kind of holding the head or holding the feet. Uh, and they press the tip of the iron into the, the pupil of the eye and move it in this kind of back and forth motion. And uh, we have some evidence the procedure would end once the victim swore an oath that they could no longer see. You know, they were, okay, I promise my vision is destroyed and they, they'd be let up, and they'd, they, you know, go. And uh, you know, this, as you can imagine, it was a really dangerous and a really delicate procedure, you know, potential for accidents abounded. You have movement on the part of the blinding victims, or if you have excessive application of pressure by the executioner, all of this could cause the iron to you know, penetrate yeah. or crush or eviscerate the eye. And that heightened the risk of mortally wounding the victim or exposing them to deadly infection. And Byzantine sources actually show a very, very sophisticated understanding of the risks of infection. And there were various strategies to reduce that risk. Yeah, I mentioned heating the iron, heating the tip of the iron was, was one of them, which would sort of burn the eye rather than really eviscerate it or, or dig into it. Um and so you, you could apply it with a little bit less pressure, you know, um, and it would immediately cauterize the the wound if it did it, it did, you know, puncture the eye in any way. Uh we also have stories about ointments and balms that were applied to the eyes afterwards that had disinfecting qualities. You know, there's there's a really tragic story from the 1200s about a general John Ducasse who gets blinded by uh, Michael VIII. And um, he becomes, he's so depressed that he refuses to allow the people caring for him after his blinding to to apply these antibacterial ointments to his eyes. And so eventually he he dies of infection Mm. uh, because he kind of doesn't want to live anymore. Uh, and then there, there's also some evidence for trained professionals in the Byzantine world. And, and these are these tend to be, when they appear in our sources, they tend to be Jews um, who seem to have been used particularly frequently as kind of a, the agents of blinding. And uh, this, this might indicate that sometimes the, the executioners of blinding doubled as surgeons. You know, Jews often predominated in medical um, professions in Byzantium, as in many other parts of the, of the medieval world. Um, so you know there were all of these different kind of precautions that could be taken or could not be taken to increase the the risk of uh, or reduce the risk of someone you know, actually dying as a result of of this really potentially delicate procedure. Okay, we'll give the audience a maybe a <laughs> moment to unclench.
0: Um, in, in, but in just a moment, um, am I wrong in recalling that? This is this from the Paleologan period, maybe that they use like scalding
1: water instead of a iron. Yeah, so, so that's really interesting, right? This starts to happen in the Paleologan period. Um, you might be thinking of you know, Andronicus the Fourth. Mm. Who in the the late 1300s? I mean, you know this very well because you've translated Chaco Gondili. Chaco Cundiles talks about boiling vinegar being used. Vinegar, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so there are, you start to see in the later Byzantine period these methods of. There's actually a term for it. That's technical term, abachination which is uh, this, this very very rare Latin word for blinding individuals by heat or by fumes rather than in these sort of invasive ways mm. and so you you begin we, we really start to see them emerge in the 1200s. Um, John the fourth Lascaris who's blinded uh, in 1261 also gets blinded by by this heated heated plate that's held very close to his eyes. this is what Pachyre says and you get this sense that that you know, some of these in these cases, you have emperors who are really, really cautious, not to, you know, they want to avoid any chance that that the victim is going to die, and so as a result, they're practicing some of these um, non-invasive techniques of blinding, right. to try to kind of achieve the destruction of sight without having to risk the the potential of death at all. Right.
0: It's like like remote blinding. It's yeah. That's, that's it's e blinding. <laughs> Um. Oh boy. Yeah. Um. And just to give a context here, so are the Byzantines the only ones who are doing this, uh, or do they do it more often, or is this a medieval practice generally that has kind of been attached to their name more than to other cultures?
1: Yeah, that, that's a great question. Yeah. You know, going back to some of what we what we said just at the very beginning, now blinding is is very very it's visible in our Byzantine sources, it's visible in Byzantine history, you know, yeah. it's very prominent in our texts. And so it's easy to see it as a specifically Byzantine thing. Um, now, there are a couple of reasons to, to soften that impression. One, when you actually look at it and, and take a comprehensive view of the practice and map it out over time, what you find is it actually goes in cycles. So there are peaks and valleys of frequency in the use of blinding over the course of Byzantine history. So rather than think about this as a really kind of continuous tradition, it's it's really kind of, it's fitful. You'll have these periods in Byzantine history where blinding seems to be used more frequently to punish political enemies and periods of history where it really disappears. And emperors will sometimes experiment with other types of things um, there are other ways of, of removing political opponents, so it's not a continuous history. It, it really goes up and down in ways that reflect some of the concerns of the emperors of, of the time, which is, is something maybe we can, you know, speak more about. But but in, in terms of the actual kind of, you know, were the Byzantines u- unique in this? Um, you know, so it's not continuously by- Byzantine, and meanwhile, you know, it's much more common in the medieval West than is often thought about. Mm. You know, there's this. Myth among Western medievalists, which actually kind of reflects the myth that Byzantinists have about this coming from Persia, where you know, the Byzantines, you know, if you ask them what's going on blinding, they'll say, oh, it's a Persian import. Well, it, Western medievalists, if you ask them, you know, if you point to Charlemagne's sons blinding his grandsons, for instance, it's something that happened, um, they'll say, well, this is a Byzantine import. So you kind of end up getting this nesting Mm -hmm. occultism. You know, it always comes from somewhere further east. And I'm sure if you had a Sasanian historian on here, he could maybe tell you it comes from India, you know. Uh, But when you actually kind of compare Byzantium and and the West, first of all, you have a, a tradition of blinding that emerges in the West. And in fact, a sustained practice of this really kind of comes about in these barbarian successor kingdoms to the Western Roman empire before it emerges in Byzantium. You know, the Byzantines really start to use blinding in a kind of sustained way from about the year 700 onwards. Mm. And you have the sustained use of blinding in the Visigothic kingdom, in the Lombard kingdom before that point. So what's interesting is that there seems to be something in some of the shared Roman history of these polities, of the Visigothic polity, let's say, of the Byzantine polity, something latent in that tradition or in that legacy um, that allows for blinding to kind of emerge. So allows for certain situations to activate that potential and have it kind of come up rather than, so rather than thinking about blinding as moving from one area to the other. I think it's, it's, we're better served by thinking about certain situations, political situations and dynamics in which blinding comes up. Situations that may have been more frequent in the Byzantine world, but aren't foreign um, in any kind of absolute way to some polities and certain types of organizations that emerge in in the West as well. Um, One last thing about blinding before I kick it back to you, If there is something particularly Byzantine about the practice that I've found, it's in the way that blinding functions to the exclusion of other types of penalties. You know, I I mentioned that blinding emerges around the year 700 as a kind of sustained practice. Before this point, you have a whole series of different types of mutilation penalties that are used against political enemies, especially nose cutting, but also hand cutting and and tongue cutting. And what's really interesting, again, if, if you map out all of these other types of mutilation penalties and compare them to blinding, these other penalties really fall away around the year 700 and blinding instead replaces them to monopolize penalties against political enemies which doesn't necessarily happen in the West. You never have blinding that takes on this kind of monopolistic tendency. Um, sometimes you'll have it among, if you find you know Westerners, they'll use it in pairing it, they'll pair it with, um, you know castration, or sometimes they'll cut off a hand and they're, mm-hmm. and then they'll blind someone, you you have this kind of grab bag, a kind of salad bar of different types of of penalties that are that are used or invoked. whereas in Byzantium you really get blinding, which dominates the landscape in a way that it doesn't in the west so that that is a difference
0: yeah, also it's a uh, single and sort of coherent political culture in the West you've got you know what whatever, yeah. <laughs> whatever happens to be going on um. Yeah, so let's talk about that point of the, the ebb and flow of this practice and how there are periods when it's used a lot and there are periods when it's not. Um, so let's talk about the one of the periods when it's not. Um, and I imagine the Pali Logan period is probably the most uh, distinctive in that regard, right? But maybe just pick that or any other that you want. So what is it that causes that practice to um, recede um, in certain periods?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I. It, it depends on what period you're you're looking at, but in general, the the dynamics have to do with I think the um, the ability of emperors or their their confidence in being able to kind of control the message of blinding. Now we, we, we spoke before in terms of legal codes how emperors often represent blinding as an act of mercy, an act of philanthropia. Um, but you know there that's the justification that's often given in these imperial texts, but there's no guarantee that the, that justification is actually going to win out. And what's interesting is that when you look at the ways that blinding is received, there's this continual tradition that exists alongside blinding of, of critique, right? Of actually taking it and uh, you know among the emperor's critics, twisting it into the actual, the, the very opposite of philanthropy, you know, you'll have, Critics who talk about it as apanthropia, this absence, you know, this cruelty or absence of of uh, actual generosity, right? So in in the same way that we can be kind of horrified by blinding, you'll have Byzantine observers who are horrified by, by it as well, and sort of use it as this hallmark of imperial overreach or excess. Um, so to. to carry out an act of blinding. It was in some ways, from the emperor's point of view, always to gamble that your kind of intended message of philanthropy or legitimacy is going to win out in the interpretation of this act among critics who who can take it and kind of use it to undermine imperial authority. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so, so just to give you one particularly revealing example is the first of the major dips that we see in blinding sustained use. So it emerges around the year 700 or so, um, and it's really used in a very athletic way by the saurian uh, emperors, this dynasty that that is responsible for the kind of first wave of iconoclasm that sort of rule from with like, seven seventeen all the way up to eight oh two or so or eight eleven um or yeah eight o two and uh you know, when this dynasty, there's a lot of blinding that goes on and there are a number of, of really controversial blindings that take place, especially in the last representative of this dynasty, uh, Irene, who ends up, you know, kind of infamously blinding her own son and taking power in her own right. Uh, she's eventually overthrown by her finance minister, a guy named Nikephoros, and Nikephoros faces all sorts of issues when he first c- comes to power, and he's he's challenged by a very powerful general, a guy named Bardanes, who marches on Constantinople and... Besieges the city and sort of gives up hope that he's ever going to actually be able to take the city, and so he he contacts Nikephoros, the emperor, and he says, "You know, I'll, I'll surrender if you promise that you won't harm you won't harm me." And so Nikephoros kind of does this whole public thing where he has sent he he writes out this you know public um, document saying, "I promise, I'm not you. Know, if you surrender." Vardanez, I promise I'm not going to harm you. The senator signed it as well. It's this very public thing. Um, so Bardanes kind of accepts monastic tonsure and he goes off into exile on this small island. And after about a year, he's off you know, in his monastic exile and these guys kind of burst into the monastery at night and they blind him. And when word of this gets out, uh, there's a big outcry in Constantinople about w- what happened. And Nikephros goes up publicly and kind of makes this statement saying, I had nothing to do with it. It happened you know on this island, way far away from Constantinople in the middle of the night. I don't know who did this, but it wasn't me. Um And, you know, he apparently goes off and kind of cries in his chambers for a, a week because he's so distraught by by what happens. And mm-hmm. you have different historians, depending on their attitudes towards Nikephoros, who, who kind of give a different reading to this, right? One who's critical of him says, oh, he definitely did it. And one who's, you know, maybe a little bit more ambiguous says, well, we can't really know what happened. There's all of this kind of ambiguity that's planted around the um the act. And so what, what we see here is, I think we we catch the emperor's In the act of trying to kind of um, put space between themselves and the action, just in case it backfires, right? So after this very, very damaging set of blindings that take place in the late 700s and early 800s, what we see is this emperor who, who really wants to insulate himself from the potential of backlash. And so goes through this whole and dance of saying, oh, I'm not gonna do it. And he doesn't do it publicly. And then he, he blinds secretly as a way of kind of giving himself a plausible deniability. Right. If as it happens, it kind of explodes, you know? And, and what we see after this point, um, after the, the blinding of Bordenes-Turkos and, and this kind of public outcry and Nikephoros' very public denial of any responsibility is that blinding really disappears for about 50 years. You don't have an emperor who, who tries it again. Uh, and it only comes back with the rise of the, the Macedonian dynasty and Basil right. the Macedonian in the eight sixties. So there's this fifty year period where it's just totally gone, and and so you you start to see those kind of peaks and valleys throughout Byzantine history.
0: Right, though they do execute people whom they would otherwise have blinded. Right during this fifty year period.
1: They'll they'll execute them. um, But what's also interesting is that when they have people who they think are too dangerous to execute in this 50 year period, you see a rise of castration um, so you know, there are emperors who are overthrown, and all of their children and their heirs mm. are casting when in an earlier period they may have been blinded. So you kind of get an experimentation with a different type of mutilation rather than, than blinding as a way of, of maybe walking back from this really third rail type of highly charged, you know, method of mutilation.
0: Yes, yes. But it, it is also the period of like court assassination.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. The, Theophobos, for instance, right? You you have these kind of underhanded assassinations that go on in this period. So there's a lot of cloak and dagger stuff. Yes, at uh, a moment when, and especially during kind of second iconoclasm, these the first round of iconoclasts were particularly um, infamous for their extensive use of blinding.
0: Right. I'll have to think about it. this. Is interesting. I, um, that's well well put. Um, so, I've also noticed that blinding, so in a period when blinding is, let's say, uh, when the court can control the message, and so they are using it, um, that there is a great deal of, so sometimes they're done publicly, and there's a great deal of attention paid to how the victim kind of personally responds to this situation. Mm-hmm. Almost in the way that in like, you know, early modern Europe, when you have public executions going on all the time, um, or, you know, kind of inquisition type, you know, autodafes and things like this, um, where there's, it's almost like a genre, like, what did they say at the moment of their execution, like, and and you would have like a pithy saying that you would say to the crowd, right? Or your famous last words or something like that. And we don't have anything like that, that I know of, but we do have many cases where, you know, people were observing how the victim was responding, mm-hmm. right? Um, so what, what's the, you know, so how do you, how did they read those kinds of moments? What, what were the expectations for like mm-hmm. a good blinding? Um, I mean, so yeah. there are people who like scream, you're kicking and screaming, like and this yeah. was considered
1: undignified. Yeah, that's 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 right. There's there's a real uh famous case. The one of the emperors who gets blinded, Michael V, yes um, in, in 1042, you know, him and his uncle get kind of dragged out of their monastery and they're put into the, the Sigma, this public square in Constantinople. And Michael Selos, who claims to be a, a eyewitness to this, says, you know, the, the uncle really he just submitted. Totally in this totally dignified way, he, he wasn't even tied down. He didn't move a muscle. Mm. You know, he just took it like a man. And and Michael V cried and screamed and and, and wriggled around, and you know, didn't wasn't dignified at all. Um, but there's actually you know this performance of dignity is is really interesting that you bring up because there there is very much a spectacle component of it when it's done in public, right? When emperors mm. really want to try to control the message and humiliate their enemies and, and and do it in a way that that encircles or encases the mutilation punishment itself with all of these types of um, humiliating rituals that that bring the. Um, victim down that, that are trying to kind of humiliate them in the eyes of the crowd and, and push forward this message of how contemptible they are. But sometimes that can backfire too. You know, Foucault has the, has his famous thing about the, you know, spectacle on the scaffold where you'll, you'll have these in early modern France, these people who go up for execution and they kind of give their, their poignant last words and the crowd starts crying or the, the entire attitude of the crowd changes. And there's an interesting case in Byzantium where we see that as well. Which is the blinding of, um, or the almost blinding of a rebel called Michael Anemas, who is uh, a rebel yeah. against Alexios Komnenos, and we have Anna Komnene in her history of her father, who who talks about seeing this, and he's paraded through the streets. You know, he's he's totally shaved all the hair in his body is plucked and he's dressed in sackcloth and his face is smeared with shit and he's you know he has these entrails that are put on his head in the place of a diadem he's backwards on a donkey just all the bad things that could happen to an aristocratic general and he's marched through the streets as people are kind of throwing things and they're they're yelling at him and they're singing these bawdy songs it's this upside down triumph and um you know he in in anna's telling of it He's so brave during all of this. He takes it as a man, you know he, he still has this dignity about him. and the crowd notices his dignified bearing and the attitude very slowly changes and they kind of stop heckling and one by one people start kind of crying out for mercy for him and they start kind of crying and so, and so the, the entire um, feeling of the event changes. And Anna gives herself credit for this. She says she notices this and she runs to her father at in the great palace, you know, uh, and says, call it off, call off the blinding. Uh, we we you know, it, it's a bad, bad idea. And Alexios kind of at the last minute reverses course and and spares him from blinding, and everybody cheers and you know, it's an all all happy thing. But you can kind of see how the message can get away from you, even in even when you do all of these, um, even when it's buttressed, it's it's kind of circled around by all these different. Um signs that are trying to direct people towards the derision of this individual mm. the, their their attitudes that they present to the public can can kind of it's always slippery right It can always uh careen out of control and into something that that be, that ends up backfiring against the the ruler or their regime.
0: That's a great story uh I'd forgotten it so
1: <laughs> thanks for
0: reminding me about that one which goes to show like how difficult it was to control the sentiments of the crowd in Constantinople. I mean, it can really unpredictable. Um, And while you were speaking, I remembered a case um, with, of like last words, but I could be wrong. Um, So in 1047, the rebellion of Tornikis and And he's blinded, and also one of his generals named Ioannis Vatazis. Mm-hmm. Before he's blinded, he says something like, oh, what a great general the Romans lose today. Yeah, yeah that's right. And, okay.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's right. It's another one of these stories where, um, you know, in Solos as well, Vatazis is sort of seen as being this, this very um, brave guy, he's you a know, mm. man, and um, there, there is a kind of implicit critique of the emperor behind the, that blinding Constantine the Ninth. It's somehow foolish of him to have done it. Mm-hmm. He has, has cast away this important general. Yeah. Uh,
0: so, what do we know about how did people get on uh, in life after they had been blinded? Do we have any stories? Do we do we know anything?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's often very difficult because they'll disappear from our sources after. Um, you know, after they're blinding, often. Um, you know, you know, I, as I mentioned with the story about Nikephoros I and Vardanes turkos uh, the sites of, of blinding, when it's not being done in public, when it's not being done in the Hippodrome or in these carnivalesque atmospheres, is often actually done in monasteries, which will sometimes double as kind of prisons, right? So you'll have like Bardanes, for instance, after his blinding, um, lives on as a monk in his monastery and is presumably kind of cared but, cared for by... Monks in this monastic community. You know, he's an elite person. I think he may have been the founder of the monastery where he's eventually blinded, and so there's you know he's it, mm-hmm. it sort of serves as a, a retirement <laughs> retirement home might be a little yeah late. it is no, no it totally is yeah, yeah. so you know, they they sometimes you'll have them disappear into monasteries but but sometimes not um, you'll have you have certain cases where blinded individuals manage to carve out places of influence for themselves in a kind of cultural sphere so there is this one. Um, Victim of blinding, Nikephoros Diogenes, who's convicted of, of conspiring against Alexios Komnenos, in you know around the year 1100, and he's blinded. And um, and Komneni goes on to talk about his career as a philosopher. Apparently, he he wrote, he dictated uh, important philosophical texts after his blinding, and so it becomes actually a pretty influential intellectual figure. In, in public figure in the Byzantine world, um, no longer able to kind of compete for secular authority or for you know generalship or or you know at court, um, but is able to kind of carve out a life this other way. And you uh, know, there's another figure from the 12th century, Michael glikas who also uh, apparently dictated texts after he'd been blinded. So there are these kind of cultural ways that people can get on. Um, what is particularly interesting about blinding after the or around the very end of the 12th century onwards, and and this is intertwined with the decline of blinding as as a type of penalty, is that you start to see more blinded individuals actually return to positions of public authority. Uh, And I I think this has to do with some of the political changes that are taking place in the Byzantine world and and the changing role of the imperial family, the strengthening of, of kind of a hereditary principle, a de facto hereditary principle in imperial succession. Um, but what you see are relatives of the emperor who kind of resume these important court positions after they've been blinded. So, a great example of this is the brother of Isaac II, Angelos, who comes to power. He sort of you know, uh, he comes to power unexpectedly in 1185 and, um, you know, overthrowing. Andronicus I, Komnenos, and the Komnenian dynasty, and he he had almost been blinded by Andronicus Komnenos. All of his family members were blinded. Uh, but he does this very Komnenian thing of taking all of his family members and, uh, and appointing them to these high court positions, even though many of them had been blinded under a previous mm. regime. And so you get this weird moment where the emperor is surrounded by these high court dignitaries, all of whom are, are blind. And um, there's a... a uh, a kind of imperial speech that's dedicated to Isaac II's brother, Constantine, who holds this very, very high title of Um, even though he's been blinded. And so you, what, it's interesting to see this speaker, Gregory Antiochos, he's called, try to deal with adapting the rhetorical conventions of this speech to a guy who's Who's blind, right? Because in this speech here, one of the things you always have to do is talk about how brave the person is and and how beautiful they are right. and how brave they are in war. And you know, you're talking to a guy who's who who can't ride a horse, you know, and who has been disfigured by this this penalty. And so he he kind of works around. He goes, well, you know, your hair is really nice, <laughs> and you have this this really you know this flush in your cheeks. And, and even though you can't lead an army in war, um, you lead. Forces against uh, you know you lead your army of charity against the forces of poverty right and because you're so generous in in endowing monasteries with alms so so you know you you kind of have these individuals who are put back in the public eye and you can see how it's it's you know a problem for some of the, these courtiers who are trying to adapt traditional forms to deal with this very very unusual set of circumstances.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, that emperor used all those men to command armies. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that, that, that's right. One of them uh, is put in charge of the Bulgarian war. And un- unsurprisingly, he uh, doesn't do very really well.
0: Doesn't go well. No. Um, I, I, I guess you can trust them not to rebel. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. um, okay. So you mentioned earlier that there might be some t- distinctive views of the body that are encoded here and in the whole practice of blinding. So, I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um, Obviously, this is a topic that we can talk about for a very long time. Uh, But so to give the audience a sense of what I mean. So there are, for example, um, interpretations of. So when some early Christians are smashing, smashing or defacing or pagan sculptures or reliefs, they go for the nose or the genitals or the feet, like you don't smash the whole thing, but you go for those, um, even in like um, in Egyptian context, so some of the ascetics who lived in sort of these pharaonic uh, temples or tombs, they would scratch out noses, feet, mm-hmm. sometimes hands so and so there are theories about like those parts of the body being somehow you know representative of whatever animating forces behind the the evil that they believed that was in these idols yeah right then there are like legal theories that the so called mirror punishments that we sometimes have like you mentioned earlier like you you steal something your hand is cut off or you you commit like homosexual acts justinian will cut off your genitals like it's, it's somehow the the punishment must target the part of the body that is implicated in the crime though obviously if you think about it that you you know (laughs) you, you can't follow that very consistently so is there something about blinding that there's some kind of logic about the body behind it that is not apparent to a modern audience
1: yeah so i i think there are two ways to kind of go with that one is more of a practical element and one is a symbolic element, right? So I, I, I've mentioned a couple of times that blinding really kind of gathers steam in Byzantium as a political punishment after 700. Uh, and part of this is because of the, the failure of earlier types of mutilation punishments to keep people from the throne. So uh, you know, throughout the 600s, what you see is um, kind of persistent use of nasal, pun- nasal mutilation. To remove enemies who are considered to be kind of too dangerous to kill, often close relatives of the emperor, so the emperor's brothers or, or you know, bastard sons or, or things like that. Um, and your know, nose cutting is really, it's highly visible, right? it's also really, a, it can be really repulsive. And I think it cuts against certain um, ideals of physical beauty that are very deeply intertwined with expectations around imperial rule, right? So it, it's a lot harder to build consensus around your um, viability for the throne if you don't kind of meet certain wider expectations about what an emperor ought to, ought to look like. Um, So in that sense, it it can be very delegitimizing, but it also, you know, leaves certain physical abilities intact. You can still ride a horse if you're missing your nose, right? You can still read or you can still kind of, um, you know, give commands and that that, that sort of stuff. Um, And this ends up coming back with the Emperor Justinian II who's deposed in the year 695, he gets his nose cut off, he's, he's exiled. And about 10 years later, he, he marches an army of Bulgarians back to Constantinople and manages to uh, retake the city and he reinstalls himself on the throne. Uh, now, eventually he's overthrown a second time in, in the year 711 and, and that time he's just killed. But it's after this point that you start to see nose cutting really disappear and you see blinding take off. As this kind of monopolizing penalty for crimes of treason against the state. So there, there's very much a, a practical element there in understanding that blinding is physically debilitating, as well as being kind of very visible in ways that a repulsive, but but not quite as debilitating nose cutting isn't. So there's a real practical element to this, right? that, that you know. The idea that if you can't see, you can't really do the actual things, the paperwork, the you know, march in the ceremonies, all of the kind of stuff that's expected of you as emperor. So there's that that one element, right? It, it's deeply encoded with the kind of practical elements of the imperial office as an office. At the same time, you know, you, you can't really attack the 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 main you know, uh, sort of sensual perception perceptive. Uh, part of the body without it generating these waves of meaning. And so blinding it does collect all of these sort of symbolic meanings in the Byzantine world uh, and blindness, of course, it, as well. Um, you know, one of the more interesting things I found in in my work is, is that there aren't any blind saints. And so you see oh. you have this tradition in classical antiquity of the blind wise person, right? Be it Homer or Tiresias, somebody who who acquires sight beyond sight. Um, somebody who you know, loses their physical sense, but they have this other kind of power mm. right? um, that, that gives them certain prestige within society. And what you find in the Bible very interestingly is that um, blindness is always negative, whether it be um you know the actual physical blindness, something that, that Christ has to heal or whether it be spiritual blindness, you know, the Pharisees are blind in the eyes of their mind when they can't recognize the divinity of Christ. So you have this very strong and negative discourse of blindness in the Bible that I think gets activated in the Byzantine world in order to kind of code blindness in this really kind of negative way. So that, that symbolism, I think, gets picked up and gets cast on to, to the, you know, People who are blind, in order to to delegitimize them as well in this kind of symbolic way, that there's something sort of impure, or or just just you know, not not right about people who are were blind. So these two things I think mean, go hand in hand, right? Both the practical element. Of blinding within a kind of political and official sense, but also this wider symbolic association with blindness that can be activated in certain situations and kind of used to symbolically delegitimate whoever it is who's been punished in that way.
0: That's fascinating. I don't know that I'd ever thought of or heard that about the saints, but you're right.
1: I can't. You have think a couple. Of any- of Western, I'm sorry. I mean, yeah, you have a couple Western saints that people have pointed out to me, but I, I haven't found any Byzantine ones. Who were blind. Huh. I mean, yeah, I mean,
0: in desperation, I was just thinking of some who might have gotten so old that they couldn't see. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but anyway, but no, that that no, that's a very good point. Um, Jake, we're almost out of time. This is a fascinating topic, and you know, I, I hope you you know you publish your dissertation uh, soon enough because I I think we need a new narrative um about all of this and for all of for this practice to be contextualized in the way that you're suggesting here. Do you have any final thoughts uh, for us, for the audience uh, about this topic to tide us over until the book comes out?
1: <laughs> uh, um, hmm. You know, uh, we, we started this conversation, I guess, by talking about kind of how shocking or alienating binding can feel. It does feel like one of these more startlingly alien aspects of the Roman and, and East Roman Byzantine worlds. Um, But, you know, over the years that I've I've been working on this topic, you know, I found how it touches on issues of cultural attitudes towards the body and their political ramifications that far from being really alien still resonate in certain ways today. You know, I think it's really easy to underestimate the body as a factor when we're talking about politics and political culture. You know, we talk about decision making, we talk about wars and armies and things, um, Mm. how people look and your sensory abilities—it's not something that we, we really put in the forefront of our political narratives. Um, but a society's shared expectations about ability and disability and physical appearance—you know—all all of these—it's all freighted with meaning, and it is vital for building consensus, societal consensus. Um, you know, every four years during presidential elections in the U.S., we always talk about how people look or don't look presidential, whatever that that means. You know, we, it's we may the hair. Not, it's, <laughs> Right. The the orange spray tan really, really looks presidential. Uh, but you know, we 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 kind of have this category of somebody looking the park. Right. And where do we get this idea that someone looks like, you know, but we have these sort of shared Uh, expectations. Um, And it's interesting mm -hmm. how in in the history of American politics, presidents who have dealt with disabilities have tried to hide it away. FDR, for instance, was was never photographed in his wheelchair. And and you'll see pictures of him standing, quote unquote, at a podium. Um, but really he's holding himself up by his arms. You know, he, he's going through this huge physical labor to try to, to you know, present this image of himself as being able to, to stand. Um, and as many other Americans have, have been watching the midterm elections very closely and especially the elections in Pennsylvania. And so it's been interesting to see um, a candidate mm-hmm. like um, like Fetterman, the, the Democratic presidential election, presidential, or not sorry, for uh, the Democratic Senate candidate in in Pennsylvania who um, you know, suffered a stroke in in the course of the campaign. And so there's been you know questions about his ability. Um, He performed in ways that didn't always meet expectations in his debate. And he doesn't, you know, he looks kind of, he wears a jersey and he kind of has his beard and he has his tattoos. He doesn't look like our kind of concept of of what a senator ought to look like. And he's gone up against this very photogenic uh, candidate. And so that's been a big part of this uh, election. And it looks like he's actually going to win his election. And and so it's interesting to think about how some of our own ideas around who is or who isn't suitable to hold public office. Um, change, right over the, um, as well. Um, but you know, I, I think that getting back to Byzantium here, some of the way it, it's it's such a visible part of Byzantine political culture, I think it has the potential, even if there's not a one to one correlation, of, of maybe making us aware of some of our own kind of heavy mental furniture that we carry around with us and we bring to our own kind of conceptions of of political participation and the role of the body and ability in that.
0: Yeah, you're exactly right. There are all of these unspoken, often unspoken expectations that we have, um, stemming from how we perceive people's bodies, uh, that we either don't talk about or we don't want to talk about, but they're definitely there. Um, and, you know, depriving someone of the ability to look you in the eye and, you know, because that it's a political skill, right? Like if if you can't do that, it's, uh, um, anyway, um, Jake, I look forward to reading your book when when it's out. Um, you know, I've been doing the podcast now for so long that um, I started out. Like there are a number of books that have come out that were written and come out during the course of the podcast existence. Um, so, I, you know, I look forward to when it comes out and we'll, we'll explore some more topics um, about this. Um, I'm pretty sure that this is going to get a lot of interest because it's a, you know, it's one of those topics that we... We, 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 um, what, what, how, what, I remember this, um, story in Plato's Republic where Socrates is talking about a guy, Leontius, who's going up from the Piraeus to Athens and he knows that there's a whole bunch of dead bodies. Hmm. Um, and he's got this grim curiosity, like this morbid curiosity to just go look at the dead bodies. (laughs) and he knows that this is this is wrong we shouldn't do this like no i can't but he can't resist and he like opens his eyes and he said and he talks to his eyes and he says there take your fill and so so there's some topics that you know we kind of grimace but we have to look at so out of intellectual curiosity yeah so i don't know if that fairly represents this is not representing your work (laughs) it's just the story that i have
1: you no, know, that. I mean, yeah, it reminds me of Alypius. Uh, I think in the in the games, you know, uh, the friend of Augustine who who doesn't want to look at the the gladiatorial games and can't help himself. <laughs> okay, so more when you have that out. Yeah, thank you so much, Anthony. It was a pleasure being here. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for coming on. Take care.